Hey, you're listening to The Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and so want to make Him the centre of our lives, our community and our world. We're going to learn how to do that right now as we sit down and unpack Sunday's sermon. Okay, well, here we are. Welcome to another week of banter. Uh, I'm Murray. And this is Mitch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're here to unpack Sunday's sermon, as the intro says. Um, <laughs> Mitch, thank you once again for the sermon on Sunday. Uh, really sort of pivotal moment in David's life and in the sort of future of Israel with mm. uh, Bathsheba now being brought into that line of Jesus as well, mm. um, indirectly later on. But this is sort of the yeah. moment. Very, um, yeah, nuanced and, and, and complicated story, but I think that it was really helpful helpful for you to sort of chronologically unpack a lot of it. Um, for you, what does this um, moment in David's story sort of symbolize? What does what sort of this mean for him in the broader sense? Mm, so David takes on a new Adam mm. role, um, given when the covenant's made in 2 Samuel 7 to have an eternal throne mm. and all that. Yeah, he, that's this like a new Eden's being formed. David's yeah. taking on this Adamic role, and so yeah, two Samuel eleven is really like his fall, mm. and yeah, the fact that Bathsheba is described as being beautiful or tov, like good, mm. um, pleasing to the eye, or like kind of tapping into that language of grabbing something that's forbidden, mm. and so just like our first parents' sin caused a huge ripple effect across the world, in in the Bible, key leaders when they fall you see the downfall of yeah not just themselves but the people around them mm. and so in some ways this is sort of da- David's fall with Bathsheba it leads to his second exile out of um, Israel mm. and this one's of his own making so the first exile was Saul chasing him that's based on David's righteousness mm. which we can see kind of Jesus connections there but this this time this is all of his own making when Nathan mm. confronts him about his sin it's like well you do this in secret one of your sons is going to do this in broad daylight and mm. um, Absalom does and we'll look at this sort of not next week the week after mm. um, yeah how Absalom sort of ramps up David's sin and David's forced to flee again and go into an exile which sort of sets up a bit of a, a template for what will happen to the nation of Israel in the future that will be exiled so yeah, the heart of the king determines the heart of the people. And so mm. that's, uh, yeah, w- what this is setting up is this moment of David's downfall, really. Mm. So. Mm. We see a, an interesting moment. Uh, Nathan kind of, you know, sort of hops onto stage for a second once again to sort of correct this time a bit mm. more harshly. But, you know, I think that the punishment fits the crime. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's quite interesting. Um it seems that in all of this as well, that David is somewhat blinded to the fact of how much he has sinned in this moment until he's confronted yeah. and rebuked in that moment. Yeah. Because before then, he's not really repentant. He's not really... No. Um, again, going to the Psalms, which I've said is sort of commentaries on the narrative. Um, yeah. Uh, just finding the verse of Psalm 51... Yeah, let me hear let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Yeah, so look, I, I don't know. Looking at that from a narrative point of view, he definitely doesn't seem to share a lot of mm. guilt. But who knows what's sort of going on? Mm. 
behind the scenes because mm. one thing is he the anger that because the the parable that Nathan shares that crime is not worth death mm. it's a fourfold restitution okay mm. so the rich man in real life he'd taken the poor man's sheep he yeah. should have repaid it four times but yeah. David's like oh he deserves death and so some people are like maybe that's actually him almost like he's guilty conscious like recognising that mm. he deserves death so mm. Yeah. yeah. And reveal you are that man. Yeah, <laughs> classic man. Such uh, a such a great line. <laughs> you um sort of spoke about this really I think helpful image of sin being a ripple effect and I think it's something that we don't actually think about enough. I think that we recognize that sin is something that affects us personally mm. and something that affects our relationship with God. Mm. Um but I think that there's this greater communal effect that mm. sin can have as you you know said um how does this affect and change the way that we view sin um and why do we find it so hard to understand sin in a communal context great question um and because number one we're we've grown up in a western individual culture mm. so whatever yeah, you do what you do as long as it doesn't hurt me. And that's kind of the mantra here in Australia in particular. Oh, whatever works for you is fine. Like, you know, that that's cool. I'll do what I do. You do what you do. And, yeah, even a lot of Christians have a very personal, like the idea of a personal relationship with God is like, mm. oh, you know, I have a relationship with God. This is how it looks. And that's okay. Nothing beyond that. And so, yeah, we don't, we don't have a collectivist idea, which is, part and parcel of what scripture was is that mm. one person represented a whole community sure. and the community's welfare was what was at stake and mm. I've, I've shared this example a few times but it's a great one when Isaac pretends his wife Rebecca is his sister mm-hmm. and Blumelech sees them fondling and he's like ah dude one of us could have taken your wife and you could have bought condemnation on all of us mm. like that's how they see it as like you know we're in this together collectively it's not mm. just about me it's about the whole community, whole yeah. family, tribe moving yeah. together in unity. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's probably the hardest thing is like our worldview is that what mm. we, what I do, and I struggle with this too because I grew up in Western culture, mm. which has that. And so, yeah. for me, like I can know this from a scriptural point of view, but still mm. struggle that just my sin doesn't just impact me and my relationship with God. There are yeah. ongoing consequences that we may not see but and i think that's important too for us to recognize that that actually the welfare of the community can be at stake with how we sin and the choices that we make Mm. and i think that it's actually quite interesting when we see the you know other side of the coin if you dare to say of Mm. blessing is also communally focused that both sin first sort of done by the individual first instigated typically by an individual um, has ripple effects into the community and likewise that is the vision that we're also given for blessing that Mm. as we are then blessed um, that there is then a ripple effect as well and it's quite fascinating I think that there is that tension, right, where we are living in a society that is so different mm. in the way that it is more individualistic. Um, is there any space for us in that too? Because I do believe that Christianity, although it is countercultural, applies to all cultures. Mm. I think that sometimes we can fall, well, maybe it's a trap, I'm suggesting maybe mm. it is, of condemning individualism. 
a little yeah. bit too much because the reality is that there is just a, a, a culture of that. And is there any point in which individualism in and of itself is seen as sinful and missing God's vision and plan? Look, I, I don't believe so. Mm. The Bible was written to a group of people in a particular culture in the ancient Near East. Mm. Um, and that's the people God chose to reveal himself to. So the Bible is... It comes with cultural baggage, mm. which we don't truly comprehend. Mm. And we're sharing just off air. I find, as I was going through this like narrative again, I was like, if this had happened in our time, like the first thing Bathsheba would have done is told someone. But yeah. for my, my saying, it's probably shame that she kind of kept it to herself. Like, well, I'm not going to say anything. Where sure. now, particularly in this Me Too, kind of post yeah. Me Too, like if Save had been my wife, the first thing she would have done is told people and yeah. David would have been condemned and hung and publicly shamed for it whereas yeah. like then it's like it's so yeah so just that like that the narrative is framed around a cultural mandate where the king was basically untouchable yeah. where women had a very set role and place and voice yeah. in society and so yeah and God speaks now in the 21st century to people from all cultures so you're right the gospel is for all cultures and all mm. people but the Bible, and I've said this line before, it was written, oh, I always get it wrong, um, it's written to us, but not for us, if that mm. makes sense. So it's written to us as a, an English-speaking person. I can read a letter from Paul or a narrative in Samuel and see that's God's word to me, but it wasn't written for me. It wasn't written mm. to Mitch Levingston, who lives in the 21st century. It was mm. written to, yeah, either first century Greek-speaking Gentiles sure. or yeah. to Hebrew-speaking people that living in you know, Judah post-exile. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. there's, it was a different audience and different mm. intention. So. You brought up something really interesting there, which was the Me Too movement. Mm. And I don't want to sort of over-extrapolate the story and, and put too many connotations that are unhelpful mm. on it. Um, but you did on Sunday reference this idea that there have by your and I think my assertion mm. and a lot of commentators assertion maybe been a bit of a misrepresentation mm. of Bathsheba in this story mm. a little bit of victim blaming a little bit of the seductress or the temptress um, yeah. uh, sort of I don't know strategically finding the best angle from which David could see her on her roof <laughs> and sort of I don't know bathing um, but yeah. we look at a few little sort of um, hints one that she was on her period mm. um, you know we which for Israelites, you know, you need to understand was incredibly shameful. You know, mm. you're not even supposed to be, you know, in, in the sort of local vicinity. You're mm. supposed to kind of go out and be in a tent by yourself. Uh, she is now partaking in her ritual cleansing mm. uh, at this moment. Um, and the reality is there could be a little bit of a correlation of a modern um, equivalent Harvey Weinstein mm. inviting the young actress up to his hotel room, yeah. you know, and yeah, essentially assaulting them. Yeah, yeah. And you see that the whole thing of Me Too was these women feeling scared, feeling mm. powerless, feeling like they couldn't speak out. Um, I think that there are some connotations there. And I think once we maybe start to view David, at least just in this moment, mm. with a little bit more, and I want to be careful because I don't yeah, want to yeah, yeah. project everything onto him, no. but with a little bit of a Harvey Weinstein-esque role of mm. the powerful person inviting, you know, the 
sort of you know non-powerful yeah. woman up to the room and and sort of having his way with her wow. i feel like maybe that's the more accurate way to read this story rather than bathsheba yeah. as the so temptress it's the classic like i just typed it in david and bathsheba the movie with gregory peck and mm. yeah like she's presented as this sort of yeah that temptress figure and that was probably the interpretation that bathsheba got as a kid was that she bathed in front of david she knew he was looking she wanted him. She wanted to kind of get into his pants, get into become queen, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then as I started researching more, and I think a lot of evangelicals don't like this view because it came predominantly out of feminist scholars. But now there's more and more sort of, mm. I guess, mainline evangelicals starting to say, actually, yeah, like Bathsheba isn't the like temptress seductress mm. a jezebel sort of figure mm. she's this woman who yeah was faithfully following torah who remains faithful to her husband and it's interesting in matthew's genealogy he doesn't call her bathsheba he calls her uriah's wife and which because even after he sleeps she sleeps with david she goes back to her home which shows mm. that she intended to remain as uriah's wife mm. she had no intention of becoming part of David's harem, mm. like one of his many wives. So, yeah, that's... And that's sort of the view that I have, is that she was this victim who... Because people say, well, why didn't she just refuse the king? I'm like, ah, you don't refuse the king. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And again, kind of this from this collectivist view, it's interesting that when Uriah is called, um, a few commentators, and one in particular who I quite like, Peter Lightheart, he reckons that Uriah knew exactly what was going on. In fact, sure. they reckon the whole palace knew what was going on. Sure. Because when he sends the messengers, like, there's a society that kind of knew what was happening. And mm. Bathsheba's... So David's probably 50 by this point. And so even though he doesn't recognise her, because she's probably quite younger, because her grandfather... Um, Asiphol, I think that's how you say his name. He's one of David's advisors. Mm. Um, Elam, her dad's one of his thirty soldiers. So it's sort of like she's probably she's probably significantly younger than yeah. David. Um, yeah, and the fact that he should have known, based on like her ancestry and the fact of who she's married to, that should have been enough to stop him. And so there's this kind of idea that the palace probably knew what was going on. Uriah probably knew what was going on. He mm. can't, you know, David calls him from the battlefield mm. and he does disobey him twice and goes back to Torah. He goes, well, soldiers can't sleep with their wives. Like, you know, it's part of being on the holy war is that mm. you remain sanctified and, mm. you know, if everyone else is doing it, I can't do that either. And so there's mm. this, yeah, so Lodhi kind of argues that Uriah is sort of shaming David <laughs> in a sense of like, well... I sort of know that you've done something. I can't like directly do anything about it because you're king, but yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to not go yeah. into my wife's house. And yeah. yeah, as I said on Sunday, the the penalty of adultery was death, capital punishment. So someone has to die from mm. this. And yeah, it ends up being Uriah. So yeah, it's the, the narrative is just full of like ironies. You know, the guy's given a letter, which is essentially his death sentence. And mm. Yeah, and this is what I was saying a, a bit before. David's kind of military strategy starts to fall apart after his sin because 
well, to get you to write, you rid of Uriah, I've got to put him on the front lines. Well, we're besieging a city. So the only way to get soldiers front line is to basically just a stupid suicide attack. So, yeah. And you kind of assume that, you know... <laughs> <laughs> there would have been some some suspect um, soldiers in that army being like, "What? Well, we're all going to like pull up really close and then what? all draw back yeah. somewhere, but like, and, don't tell Uriel." <laughs> and it's actually really interesting that um, when Joab sends the messenger back to David, he says, "Yeah, I didn't read this at all." It says, "When you're finished giving the king this account of the battle, um, yeah, um, the king's anger may flare up. He may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the war? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jera?" Beshesh, which is another way of saying um, Gideon. So right. Gideon's son, that's how he's killed. A millstone's dropped on him. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, so it's um, interesting. They kind of notice, like, hey, yeah. Abimelech was killed. Abimelech's a wicked, wicked man. He kills 69 yeah. sons of Gideon and becomes king. And yeah. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that he's killed by a woman with a millstone, this fierce warrior. So they're saying, like, hey, like, we know this is part of, like, our history. That this dude yeah. was killed for being too close to a wall. What were you doing? Yeah. Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall? So he died. Why'd you get so close to the wall? He asked you to say, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And so you see this mm. like, mm. these stupid sort of tactics. Mm. Uh, and that's where I was really thinking like this ripple effect, this David's meant to shepherd Israel. And yeah, we don't know how many men were killed, but mm. the point is they shouldn't have been killed. Mm. And so there's families that would have buried these, yeah, soldiers. There's a lot of heartache in Israel because David's sort of becoming, yeah, a little bit pharaoh-ish. Um, is that the word? A bit like pharaoh, acting like a pharaoh. Pharisaic? No, that's, pharaoh, no, no, that, no, that's pharaoh. He's acting like a new pharaoh because in Deuteronomy 17, the king's not supposed to accumulate wives or gold or chariots, but they're meant to read Torah. And that's mm. and so David's not collecting chariots yet. And Solomon will do that. He collects chariots mm. and lots of wives and gold. But David's sort of starting to do it. He's got himself lots of wives. Mm and being that taker and so yeah and what does Pharaoh do the the nation of Israel enslaves them mm. and so we're starting to see that 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 yeah even the man that was what we kind of read around on it even the man after God's own heart even he's not good enough yeah and that's what these narratives are sort of doing is like oh mm. who is going to be this king yeah and we're kind of left waiting till we get to Matthew 1 <laughs> yeah um, I don't want to go too far down this mm. tangent, um, partly because, you know, it's one, one of those things like, why is he trying to be an apologist for people who have affairs? Um, but <laughs> it is something I think striking in this moment to notice um, that King David <laughs> had a pretty horrific, disgusting affair that was mm. more sordid and violent mm. <laughs> and sinful than, um, let's say, I'll throw him out there, um, a Carl Lentz. Mm, yeah. And yet we'll throw Carl Lentz under the bus and there's mm. no chance for redemption. There's mm. no chance for, you know, a, a restoration there. And yet we see that David, I mean, we'll still happily, you know, celebrate the over half of the book of Psalms yeah. is like written by him. Yeah. What is our response to people who fall from grace mm. Wonderful and should question. it maybe be different as countercultural Christians yeah there is a real tension um, David is forgiven but he lives with consequences and so first consequence is the death of his son and yeah he loses his empire 
mm. to Absalom. So, yeah, I, I guess in a sense that he is punished in his own way. And yeah. So I guess when you go to like the modern pastor that falls. Yeah. Or the modern anybody who falls. Who like, falls, let's be yeah, real. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard stories of people in churches essentially suddenly getting kicked out yeah, because of a, a falling short in a moment. Mm. I'm not talking about sort of continual yeah. sin. It's I, a tricky I thing. I like what the association does with pastors when we sign the code of ethics is there's a sort of a restoration process. Hmm. It's a process they work towards with people kind of, yeah, some things you're going to get booted out for for being a pastor. Oh, sure. Like, and yeah, for the safety like, of, yeah, of yeah, the yeah. congregation, that's yeah, fair. But yeah. um, there's some things they, I think they tend to aim for restorating restoration over a process rather yeah. than just, yeah. So I know someone who was put on supervision for a while sure. and had to kind of prove that they, yeah. but yeah, the whole point was, well, we don't just want to kick you out. We want sure. to help. Yeah, story, and that and that's worked really well. So yeah, yeah, it is a because Paul, when he says like, yeah, kick out, you know, the unrepentant from among you. That's the unrepentant the, is different though. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's seeing as someone's genuinely repentant, you've got to build, have that process of building up trust. Yeah, so, and I yeah. agree. It's it's not just you know business as normal. Let's mm. keep going. But I think that it does point towards. And you know, I've said before, like if you want to learn how to repent well, <laughs> check out David. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he repents it's, well. He sins yeah. really well as he well. Too, yeah, he repents really well. Yeah. I think that's the thing that we want to be learning. Yeah. And, and that's the key difference between him and Saul. Yeah. Is that he repents. Saul makes excuses. Saul. Um, Saul killed people because they wouldn't follow his words mm. instead of Yahweh's David submits to Yahweh's commands when he's called out mm. and that's the key difference and so yeah yeah I think it's probably the thing is um, with forgiveness forgiveness is uh, actually I can probably tell I can tell a story um, when I was doing refugee ministry there was a one guy I got to know such a dodgy dude like he was super super dodgy I, d- I didn't know him that well but anyway Mm. he messaged me years later saying oh Mitch I've become a Christian I got arrested I can't remember what he did he got arrested he got put in prison like back in detention because he was a refugee and you commit a crime you go back to detention and in detention he found Jesus and he wanted me to be a character reference for him to get out and I said look it's really I'm really glad that you're a Christian I said I'm not going to be a there's still consequences just because you found Jesus you still have to kind of do the time and he got really cranky and he was so cranky uh, when I was like yeah it's like clearly didn't understand that like just because God's forgiven you doesn't mean that like well okay now I like well yeah that's great I'm really happy for you but yeah this is part and part yeah I really I wrestled with it I felt really uncomfortable and he was so angry like kind of said some rude things to me in the message yeah. and then never spoke to me again I was like oh well God like, bless you brother <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah but that's part of it it's like yeah God forgave him if he was genuine about it, but yeah, there's still consequences. Like you find God in prison, not like the prison officers are like, well, okay, you murdered someone. Okay, cool. Now you're free to go. Yeah. Like God's forgiven you. And that's the yeah. key part, but there are still yeah. ongoing consequences. And so, yeah, that's what we learn about here with David is, yeah. And particularly in the final chapters mm. of Samuel and the Absalom saga, like mm. that's part of this is part of the, mm. yeah, what they call Lex Talios, eye for an eye. Mm. tooth for tooth which some people think is it's actually about giving a 
punishment that fits the crime. Yeah. Let's say David, so p- part of like true justice, fair justice. So, you yeah. know, if you rob someone, you don't stab them as like there's a there's a payment back. And so yeah, in this yeah, sense, yeah. Yeah, David committed yeah. adultery and murder. So in a sense, that's what. Yeah. The punishment this God this gives isn't him colonial ultimately. Australia. We're not sending yeah, yeah, people yeah. across the world yeah, for a loaf know. of br- stealing a loaf of bread. So that's, yeah. so that's part of it. Is he experiences God's justice mm. upon him, and that's through, yeah, very harshly Absalom, and really, yeah, the for a period quite a crazy spiraling of the the peace and serenity that David had at two Samuel seven. Well, it yeah, sort of falls apart. Well, that, that was also an interesting thing that, you know, made me think when you brought up that idea of, you know, he saw something that was pleasing to the mm. eye and he took it. Is the moment before Bathsheba sort of maybe, you know, from yeah, 2 Samuel yeah. 7 to 2 Samuel 11, is it somewhat supposed to be a recapitulation, a Edenic yes. sort of vision of things are finally in order and in place? And look, it's, it's not the Eden. But it's a you know sort of yeah, echo of echo, yeah. So not not a direct correlation because obviously they're still fighting their yeah. enemies. But but that's meant to be idea is that yeah. a number of commentators know that this is sort of yeah. There's a few key characters in the Bible that take on an Adamic role: Noah, Abraham, mm. and now David. Right? Mm. They kind of called, for lack of a better word, to rule over the people, to mm. subdue over the earth. And so mm. yeah, this is sort of David's downfall and. Mm. Yeah, we get little, uh, love that word, signpost to use NT, right? Yeah. Signpost. So little just snippets here of like, okay, this is what it could look like mm. when you've got the true sun image of God ruling over the earth. Mm. This is kind of what life looks like, but we're yeah. never going to sort of see that. So you get a little snapshot with David, 2 Samuel 7, get a snapshot with with Solomon. Mm. But yeah, it's... yeah. And it, what's, um, what I find interesting okay. here is, yeah, obviously the... Um, David and Bathsheba's first child dies as part yeah. of... And look, and that's... Like I said on Sunday, like, really struggle with that. It's like, okay, like... Yeah, this part mm. of life. Like, life is, is has this brutal awfulness to it and the scriptures sort of... Yeah. Don't, don't shy away from that. Like, is it the child dies on behalf of David or is the child dying because of the, f- like, consequences of living in a broken world? Like, was the child... Like, secretly, we don't actually know. Like, and there's... Yeah. Yeah. And look, I don't know. The point is, like, the child does die. And as part of that replacement son, which is sort of a Samuel theme, we've talked about replacement yeah, sons. Sure. He gets a replacement son in Solomon who yeah. brings peace. And there's sort of a, like, um, yeah, almost like when, when the offering is given, there's sort of peace, like God's peace rests. And so it's almost mm. like the birth of Solomon brings sort of, that peace rested like David in a way. A rainbow that makes baby. Sense. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. a sense of because he's the one who's chosen to fulfill, like we spoke about last week, the immediate fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Um, yeah, Solomon's the one to build the temple and the one mm. to sort of, yeah, to lead the Israelites into that space of worshipping Yahweh mm. in Jerusalem. Yeah. We've spoken already a bit about maybe the incorrect interpretation of the roles that Bathsheba and David are playing in this story. Um, and I would maybe equate that <laughs> to um, a 
uh, top-heavy representation of males, you know, being biblical scholars throughout church history. And I think that, as you've sort of commented, it's been actually a lot of feminist commentators who've been able to, yeah, maybe correct Mm. or, you know, sort of adjust the Mm. interpretation of this story. How much, then, would you say this story actually has to do with lust? Uh, I'd say that's not the purpose of it. The purpose isn't to, to, uh, to be a warning to men about not looking at women lustfully mm. as a purpose of the narrative like from the I guess the original author's intention is to show the yeah well let's, let's kind of take a few steps back so you got the what we're, what in the Bible's called the former prophets Joshua judges Samuel kings purpose of the book of Samuel within the kind of four-part form of prophets is to show how Israel went from a tribal-led society with mm. judges to a monarchy mm. and how the monarchy is sort of fulfilling those prophecies Jacob gave in Genesis 49 of Judah, the seven yeah. not parting Judah, and sort of, and even like to Abraham about kings coming from him and the image of like the the an Adam role kind of ruling over the world. Mm. That's what's showing is how, yeah, this transition to, to monarchy and how Ultimately, even the, the promised monarchy through David is going to be a complete night of failure because you get to the end of Kings and it's all in exile. So that, mm. that's the original intention. But what we can draw from it is, yeah, lessons from that. And lessons are is that, well, yeah, lust has serious implications. So there's, so I kind of have a reading. You've got the exegetical reading, but also what I call the devotional reading of how placing yourself into the story and mm-hmm. yeah obviously is problem as was we kind of saying before it's not mm-hmm. just men but women too are struggling with lust mm-hmm. and it shows you the the consequence of that for david we don't know anything about Bathsheba's mindset she appears here she says two words and not even really her it's she sends a message her messenger says i'm pregnant mm-hmm. she appears in the beginning of one king's in front of David to remind him, well, hey, remember Solomon's meant to rule? So mm. we have no idea about her, her her emotional state and what impact that had on her. So, yeah, the, the real point of this is to show how the fall of David and the impact upon mm. the life of the nation of Israel. But we can draw practical applications for that. And mm. one of the things I was trying to sort of highlight is that the idea of being takers and that's what kings do they take 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 from mm. the people and so what can be a struggle is you just frame it around well men don't look at porn don't sleep with women outside of marriage or have affairs is that well if you're not a man and you don't struggle with lust it's like well that's not my problem so okay whatever i move on but drawing at it more from a consuming consuming that that idea of like well deep down all of us we kind of take from people we lust in our own ways we yeah try to fix our own problems in our own ways um so yeah yeah, because that was probably that's probably another view that was kind of taught was just that well it's not wrong but just a bit of a simple reading of like this is a warning about the dangers of lust so Mm. make sure you watch your eyes men which you know is very important but it's probably not the the main reason the, the, the narrator wrote this were down was that, in fact, that the the whole lust scene it's over in three verses. <laughs> like it's actually not yeah. really the focus on it. It's more about, in fact, ironically, um, the real focus is actually Joab. 
because in biblical narrative um, a character speaking mm. is very important that biblical yeah. narrative is very light on mm. details and character speaking so when a character speaks it actually shows that that's important mm. so yeah it's actually around Joab almost in a sense that's the yeah main thrust of it if you're looking for something important which seems to yeah, show that kind of what Pierre Lightheart argues is David's tactical knowledge is starting to like fall sure. apart, which sure. is what Joe, which is why he just such detail to this messenger about sure. like David's sort of not not becoming the the, the king that he should be. By okay, yeah, being at home. So yeah, 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 yeah. That's really fascinating, and I think that this is something that um, is really helpful when we start to understand the book of one and two or the book mm, of Samuel, um, as yeah, the rise and fall of these two men, Saul and David. Mm. Um, I think that, um, there's a really helpful as always Bible project video that sort of goes through this journey and kind of art, you know, does these very physical arcs, you know, mm. these, these sort of rise and falls almost yeah. like a bell curve kind of mm -hmm. thing, um, of these moments where they are elevated and moments where, as Hannah's song says from the very mm. beginning, you know, that the, the pride down. will fall, mm. um, the pride will be, the pride will be brought down. Um, it is really fascinating as we sort of come near the end of this series, um, looking at the way in which ultimately <laughs> even the king which is celebrate who's celebrated as the greatest king of israel mm. falls so far short of the glory of jesus mm. the the ultimate king of heaven and earth yeah. um as we sort of wrap up today are there any sort of closing thoughts around this passage um and yeah yeah what uh, so, what we can take so away i from think we've we, um i think because we spent so much time exegeting the old testament i feel we can start to look towards jesus mm. and zach eswine He's a pastor and writer. He describes Jesus approaching the woman caught in adultery. He says Jesus is probably the first man that looked upon her with pornless eyes. And that expression has really like struck me. Jesus was able to like look at women and see them for who they are, for the is the image of God made in them. And so, yeah, rather than sort of a David who takes, 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 Jesus gives, 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 and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I, that passage from Luke, you know, from Luke 21, the kings of the Gentiles lord over each other, but, and, you know, those who are above them, they called benefactors, but not so of you. The greatest among you must be like the the youngest. Mm. And those, you know, who want to be mighty, be like the, the servant to all. And so, yeah, D Jesus is really shifting that mm. of, yeah, this is the type of king that we need the, the son of David who's going to rule over the world does that very very differently mm. and so particularly the whole point of like this Samuel series was to show how Jesus yeah how Samuel points to Jesus mm. and so yeah looking at that we see the in a way too like the son like David's son had to die for his sin because that was the consequence of sin is death and so Jesus mm. the true son of David dies on behalf of not just David's sin, but the sin of the whole world. Mm. Um, yeah, and then David, and then um, Jesus becomes like a Solomon, the prince of priests, which is what he's called in Isaiah. And mm. so, yeah, we see from this narrative just little those hints about Jesus, and even Bathsheba. In many ways, she's vindicated. David took from her everything: took husband, took a reputation. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and in a sense, Jesus has restored that because 
she's part of that line and Matthew kind of celebrates that mm. in scripture that we see her in mm. each Christmas if you read through Matthew and look at that genealogy which I did my first time here we looked at the yeah yeah that, that idea is that in a sense Jesus has sort of restored her and like recognized her role mm. um, in that in fathering the mothering I should say mm. the Messiah so mm. yeah there's yeah, that idea too, and obviously, um, as part of Samuel, that idea of a king, or the king wasn't meant to accumulate wealth, chariots, wives, and we see in Jesus, like that's not what he did. He embodied that Deuteronomy 17 mentality of a king, and mm. so that's the king that we're, yeah, supposed to follow. So mm. that's what we can draw from this, and probably, quick, yeah, well, I guess with the U.S. presidential elections coming up next year and all the kind of candidates are out there it's easy to look for a particular person or a political party to be the savior and mm. here a narrative like this bursts the bubble and that's what i love about the bible is the if you're if you're making this stuff up you wouldn't have this in here yeah yeah if you, it, you it, wouldn't put your greatest hero yeah <laughs> like, if this is a pro-israel sort like of history you yeah. like you wouldn't have this in here i'd leave um, it out yeah you, you would you'd whitewash it you just present him to be the very best of him and you could not accuse the bible of being israeli propaganda (laughs) yeah yeah like you know it's and and this is kind of how god works in it um i heard a great contrast between um i guess samuel and kings and chronicles because um samuel kings gives you the i guess the reality Here's the warts and all. Mm. Chronicles gives you sort of the theology. So Chronicles doesn't recount David and Bathsheba. Mm. It does recount David's census. So mm. when he and the near just near destruction of Jerusalem. Mm. Um, but yeah, it just focuses on the positives. And so this guy's saying, look. So reading sort of both books, you sort of get the theology. It's like yeah, God worked through these really broken people who, from our point of view, are like wow, like why would you? Like you said, like David's like. His actions way trumps like a Carl Lentz or someone yeah. else like that, but shows that he's working through these people to accomplish his purposes. Mm. And yeah, to use Paul's language in Ephesians, it's sort of like grace mm. you've been saved. And so, yeah, so that we can't boast in ourselves or think that we're high and mighty. And yeah, it keeps us just, for me, it keeps us focused on mm. Jesus as the one who's the example to look to, not yeah. to like. Yeah, obviously, heroes of the faith, they have a role for us, but they're still flawed, broken mm. people, and it's to keep our eyes fixed firmly upon Jesus, mm. who was the flawless one. So. I think it's a good challenge for us as well in an uh, incredibly consumerist and capitalist culture that is very focused on take, 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 mm. um, looking at the countercultural stance of, of Christ and what that mm. then means for the way in which we embody that of generosity mm. Of, of servant-heartedness um, and of sacrifice maybe mm. sometimes uh, for the God's glory, um, mm. for the love of others. It is, I think, uh, a constant challenge as we, you know, have sort of even spoken about at the beginning of this episode today, the um, individualistic sort of mm. culture that we live in that's all about how can I benefit myself. Um, it's actually in a lot of ways, you know, very primitive (laughs) when in reality yeah god is calling us to care for 
the other mm. we care for God more than ourselves. Mm. Well, we are uh, got a, a little uh, intermission in our Samuel series once again. Yeah, we've uh, had a few this... intermissions, haven't we? That, that's all right. That's all right. It's all good. I think people love a little bit of a uh, palate a cleanser. Break. Yeah, a bit of a break. Who doesn't love a little carols weekend? So oh, yeah. going to be exciting. Uh, singing singing some carols mm. this weekend. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. We've got some great carols, which again mm. are proclaiming the um, yeah, I suppose kinghood of Christ in mm. all of this. I like that word, kinghood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah the, king the king, the king. I think it is. You can, we can search it up. <laughs> if it's not, I just, I just coined it myself. Um, yeah, as Christ sort of came in the most humble of ways in a, mm. in a manger to, yeah, give, give, give. <laughs> so, but um, as we sort of uh, head then out of that, uh, what will we be uh, sort of enjoying uh, as a final wrap up for Samuel, Samuel in two weeks' time? Yeah, if I had more time, it would have been great to do David's census. So we're going to look at um, Absalom and the exile mm. and how in ways that mirrors Judas' betrayal of Jesus mm. in the garden. Mm. And so sort of finishing off there with, yeah, really David's yeah the consequences of his actions mm. and how, yeah, just the impact that that has and ironically mourning for kind of enemies like, mm. yeah <laughs> then like instead of his men like and they, when Absalom does die he's like mourning him and Job's like dude stop mourning or they're gonna like turn their back on you so yeah, yeah, yeah. again kind of going this whole he becomes a bit of a failed leader after this sin so mm. yeah it's yeah. all downhill from here guys but it's all right it is all downhill Jesus, Jesus picks it Jesus, up Jesus. so yeah so that was um. so that should be uh, it's really cool like I was reading an article a few months back about just sort of those little connections between Absalom and David and Jesus yeah. and Jesus there's yeah. a few little plays on there so yeah. very cool looking yeah. forward to it too easy well looking forward to uh, some, some some herald uh, angels yeah, singing so this nice, weekend so some nice carols to really reflect on Christmas before you know we Go on a bit of a downer. <laughs> That's all right. Look, I'm sure. I'm sure December 24th and 25th will be a, a true oh, uplift. Yeah, will be. We're reflecting on. Although actually, Christmas, the Christmas narrative is actually super depressing from Matthew's point of view, at least. Yeah, you get past. I've never really thought of that. Mitch. Well, you get to the point where you know the the infants are slaughtered in Bethlehem. Yeah, There's true. not too many Christmas things I've seen where Herod's soldiers are killing little baby boys in Bethlehem. Yeah, like, well, you know, a, maybe we can do a, a bit of a retake on the nativity scene yeah. next year and do like a river of infant blood. Yeah, I think that'll really like draw in the masses. <laughs> Yeah, I remember reading it once. I never dawned on it. Actually, Christmas narrative is terrible. Like, it's one of like uh, fleeing and horror and Mary and Joseph going down to Egypt. Yeah. It's like, yeah, kind of just think of the nice parts. But yeah, the world that Jesus chose to enter into. Yeah, it was a very broken one. Indeed. So. Indeed. <laughs> well, thank you for the chat. And uh, uh, yeah, we'll look you. forward to uh, singing some carols on Sunday. Yeah, I'll see you on Sunday. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.